Welcome to the State of Developer Education, a podcast by Major League Hacking. We explore how technical leaders are creatively tackling the developer education gap to help prepare the next generation of technologists for the real world and build businesses that can adapt to any changes in the technology ecosystem. I'm your host, John Gottfried. Welcome back to the State of Developer Education. I'm John, your friendly host, and I'm really excited for this week's episode with Jacob Harrington, who is a self-taught developer, longtime community organizer, and now a product manager at Walmart. Thanks for joining us, Jacob. How are you doing? Yeah, no, totally. I'm psyched to be here. I'm a fan of your organization here and in this podcast, which I've, I've heard a few episodes of now. Yeah, I'm just psyched to be here. So I'm in a really good mood today. And how are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing really good, man. I'm excited for our conversation. The place I always like to start with my guests is origin stories. I find it really informative to hear how people got started in tech and programming. So let's go like back in time with you and hear how you first got started. Totally. Yeah. It's something that I like to talk about whenever I do kind of get some kind of stage or platform and talk about my career is out of the gate. I benefit massively from this very specific like mythos that exists in this industry. I started programming, like working with computers and interested in them when I was like 12. I really like Star Wars and I wear glasses and like I yeah, I walk into a room and I tell you my life story. People are like, oh yeah, that makes sense. You're a programmer. So when I think about how I got started professionally, that's a little different than what people might expect. But the actual narrative of like little kid likes computers, plays lots of video games, you know, whatever, and then starts to write some code, that's pretty typical for me, or like fits the narrative that people like to talk about. And then the next bit, I was in school and I got really into design. And I had this teacher that actually like, I don't know if I should talk about this on recording, but I had this teacher that like gave me, like basically stole a copy of Photoshop from the school for me and gave it to me. So I guess she was like, you have this, you know, potential in design. And she gave me this copy, started playing it a lot. And that got me into this other class, like the next year, that was like a projects-based weird class that mostly only exists in my state, which is uh, Arkansas, by the way. This is all relevant that I'm in like a state that has like the 48, you know, worst education in the US or whatever. I went to this in public school and stuff, got a school class that is really unique to Arkansas, um, really odd that it's in our school system, but it was project-based and I got to write like grants and I actually received a couple of grants and a component of some of those grants were that I had to do some technical things like run websites or like in one case, like I literally had a server that was running in this classroom with like 70 machines and students had to be the server administrators. It was like part of the stipulation on why we got money to like have this class is that students are learning, you know, IT skills. So like I had to do that as part of that. And that went from design very rapidly into like making posters for events and then into like making website and web graphics into, okay, you got to get this on the internet. And then like, okay, now I have to run like this computer, you know, Windows Server 2008 or whatever this is. And that turned into now I need to know PowerShell. So it just goes down this rabbit hole. And that's how I would say I got into programming. You asked me how I got into the profession. That is an entirely different story. But that's my answer of how I got into programming or tech as like a hobby, which eventually would become a career. Those grants, were they from the state government? Were they from like a foundation? Like what were the grants intended to do? Totally. So the class is called the East. If you ever want to look it up, it's like environmental and spatial technology. And it's such a weird class. And it was a huge part of my high school experience. But kind of just like pick stuff in your community that you think should be different or could be better as a student. And then you go out and try to do that. And Mm -hmm. there's not a lot of guides on how you do that. They just want you to use environmental and spatial technology. So like if you're mapping something, then that, okay, you've done that. Or if you're making a website, you've done that. If you're, as long as it somehow contributes this set of technologies. 
So a couple of friends and I and some people who had been in the class years before knew that you could go find a grant. You can write it. You can get paid to be in this class. And so like we went out and we were like, let's go find the grants. And we found one from like, I think it's the Illinois River Watershed Partnership was one of them. We built this big rain garden at an elementary school. It's like the kids use that now for science at the elementary school, but it's also like a cleans rainwater in the watershed. It's like kind of neat. So we got paid to do that and we did that. Another one was like doing like an energy efficiency audit of our school district that we just like decided we should do that because there's a bunch of old schools and they probably weren't good at, you know, keeping it warm. They weren't insulated and stuff. And that also we got paid to do that because after hours, we were going through the schools with like infrared cameras and like looking for areas where they had issues. So it was, it's a weird experience, but a component would be things like we need to have a website about this event we're having tonight, or we need to have, you know, some kind of video put together and Final Cut Pro only runs on this type of Mac and this one's broken now. So can someone come fix Final Cut Pro so this other project can get done? And like, that would be the sort of stuff that I would step in and do. And basically, I mean, my first like paid role in tech, I was basically an IT help desk person. So like that was me getting training that would eventually become that job a couple of years later. So it was a weird thing, but if, you know, shout out to East, I know there's a handful of people that know what that is. So if people are involved in that, it, it affected my life in a, in a good way. So I know I've never really gotten to go back and tell any of my high school teachers, stuff like that. So maybe somebody will hear this podcast and I'll get to, get to hear that. I love the concept you are describing. I feel like it's not something that exists in 99% of high schools, but like, the idea that you would just give a teenager some money to go figure out a problem is really novel, right? Like, mm -hmm. there's a lot of trust involved there. There's a lot of like autonomy that kids don't usually have. Like, even just hearing you describe it, I'm like, wow, I would have loved to do that when I was in high school, right? And, and it's, I don't know, that's super unique. I had never heard of that before. Yeah, I was a big troublemaker. So it was like a really good outlet for me. Like it was, it totally gave me like a positive way to use that energy. So you said that was kind of how you first got into tech and programming, but not necessarily how you started your career. I know that at some point you kind of like dropped out of college, which, you know, also a different path from a lot of people. Like, how did you go from, I like tinkering with technology to I am a professional full-time employee working in technology? I'll try to skip a lot of context filling here, but I at one point was in college, right? I was studying computer science and then for really like a semester Arabic and then I went into basically like business stuff and then that sort of just fell away so I dropped out and I use the phrase dropped out because I really just kind of flaked out on college I guess like I, I actually still have 90 credit hours at the university it's like 20 minutes for me I could totally go finish it but it's really expensive I don't know if anybody's noticed that so I'm probably not going to do that it's not really a financial upside for it but the experience when I was in college was not awesome. Like I wasn't a huge fan of the curriculum and the things I was going through. I mean, I was also a cadet in an Air Force commissioning program. And I got hurt lifting weights. And it wasn't really like a one to two, like I got hurt and now I'm not in this program anymore. But I got hurt and I had this guy in my life. He was a captain in the Air Force and, and he sort of just sat me down and we had a conversation about this because I had a way to get out of the medical issue and continue and follow his life path of being in the military. And he just was honest with me. And told him about like his life passion and that he hadn't made a lot of progress in that direction and that he kind of wishes he had done things a little bit differently. And that was enough to convince me that I probably should reassess how I was approaching things. Because even at that time, I was interested in like the concept of startups. Like I didn't know what that was. I'm in Arkansas, like there's not a lot of startups here. I really didn't know what I was talking about or interested in back then, but I knew there was something about building businesses that I thought was cool. And that captain just kind of told me like, this is not a path to do that. So, you know, Decide what you're going to do with that in mind. And I 
kind of just took that out and said, I had this injury. I'm not going to do this. And I reassessed what I could do that was valuable. And I thought, man, I know computers a little bit. And so I went and got an IT internship. And that went from, I work at this giant corporation in the basement doing IT. And I, I love the people I worked with. But I don't really want to do this job forever. And I started noticing that there were a couple of startups that were getting funded in my area. And that's when I really was like, okay, this is a path that I can get to be where I want to be building companies. Um, and the thing that none of these companies have and that every founder ever wanted at the time was a technical co-founder. So I was like, I can just become that. And that was the thought. And that's when I started going, I'm not in school anymore at all, but I'm going to start calling it startups. I'm going to ask for internships as though I'm a student. I'm actually going to do three or four of these at a time. And I did three or four internships at three or four different startups at the same time while also doing like hourly consulting stuff, building little tiny websites for people. And I don't know how, but somehow someone in that process passed my name off to some guy that was trying to hire Ruby on Rails engineers. And he gave me an interview. Really long story short, the company was being acquired and they needed to fill seats. So I got the job. Even though I hadn't ever done Ruby on Rails, I had just done all these like startup hacky little things where I was like, yeah, I learned some Python at that job. I learned how to do really good SQL queries at that job. I learned how to do this at that job. And like when I got in this interview and I just was open about the fact that I don't really know web development very well. I'm not a Ruby developer. I've never touched Rails. You really probably shouldn't hire me for this. That company was like, hey, we need people. So you have the potential and the aptitude. And I got really lucky. That was how I made it into the industry as a full-time engineer. But I spent like four years, basically, I could have got a degree. I spent a really long time just like jumping between startups and trying to do internships and trying to build projects and trying to understand what even there was to do in the technical field. It wasn't like it is now in a lot of ways where you can go online and say, hey, in six months, you can be a web developer. Those ads didn't exist back then. Nobody was selling that. And so I didn't know if I was going to be a business intelligence developer. I didn't know if I was going to be an IS person. I didn't know if I was going to be in... Security. I didn't know what there was to do, but I got lucky that I fell into Ruby on Rails web development because that enabled me to do a lot more. And that's where I'm at now. Did the startups know that you had concurrent internships or is this one of those like hacker news? It's a little bit of one of them, but some of them didn't know. One of them actually, I called this guy. So I went into LinkedIn. This is a great way. If you have a fear of rejection, you've never worked in a sales job, this will, this will fix it. So go into LinkedIn, look the 25 or 50 mile radius or whatever around yourself and then put in like CT and then, you know, whatever, wildcard, CE, wildcard, and then like whatever, C-suite, wildcard, and then ask every single one of those people to get coffee with you. And like you will, you'll have the same sales experience of like, this is like 80% rejection rate and 90% rejection rate. But the people that met with me, a lot of them were kind of impressed at the way I went about doing that. And a lot of them thought I was an interesting kid. In fact, one guy literally hired me to work at a startup because he wanted to talk to me at the books I was reading for 10 hours a week. Like he was the CEO of the startup and he said, oh, yeah, I'll pay you like $8 an hour to come here and talk to me at the books that you're reading this week, you know, for 10 hours a week. And that turned into, okay, he has an Excel spreadsheet. He obviously knew this the whole time he was talking to me, but he has Excel spreadsheets that need to like data munging work. And like, then he wanted that to come out somehow become some kind of prediction thing. And he had this AI student that he had as an intern. And he was like, okay, if I get these two people together, but that's ironically, like my job at that company literally started out as I talked to the CEO about the books I'm reading because that's, that's his hobby. And like, I got copy with them. I talked about startups and he was like, this kid is interesting. You know, this kid want to do something and interns are cheap. I'm like, that was my strategy. I knew interns were cheap. I knew I could get close to people that otherwise wouldn't have a full-time role for me by just doing a lot of internships. And that did absolutely turn into full-time software engineering roles. Like it's, it's a direct line. 
but it's not a path I would necessarily recommend. And it's not like something I give advice. It's just like the thing I did. I don't even know if it would work for other people. Yeah. It's one of those interesting conundrums because a lot of the people I know who have had really interesting careers went down a path that is not generalizable. Well, I try to find that as not advice ever. Like I don't tell people go out and like just, you know, undersell yourself to as many people as you can until you have the experience. That's not always like advice, but go ahead. Yeah, no, I mean, I was just going to say that, like, I think there is some nugget buried in there about opportunistically thinking about your career and trying things that are a little bit like abnormal. Like the first job I had was I literally like went to my high school guidance counselor office and there was like a post-it on a wall that like some small business needed a tech savvy, you know, kid to like fix their computers. Right. And that was it. And I like showed up and I was like, hey, like, I know computers, like, let me help you. And that turned into, oh, why don't you build our website? Why don't you, you know, like design this application? And it was sort of, there was no structure to it. It was very opportunistic and experimental. And, you know, I think a lot of people, especially now that it's more well known, think about a really linear path into these careers. But a lot of time, it really is pretty zigzaggy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just exposure to technology, and in my case, at a young age, but to make this full circle, and I don't know if this is the case for you, I don't really know your background, but I you came from like sort of the same IT, like tinkering with technology and turning that into a profession in software. Like, as I became a software engineer, just because I started learning the stuff at 12 does not mean that I was confident in any of it. I was like, worst case of imposter syndrome in the whole world in my first full-time dev job, because like I totally could write code and I could make websites work and I could pass interviews and I could like talk about this stuff. I know how to do this. But when someone sits down who has a computer science education or has been in the field for 10 or 15 years and starts using like jargon or starts talking to me about like the very real problems they're facing in retrospect aren't that complicated. But I just had no idea what I was hearing or how to communicate or how to connect. So even though I was someone who felt very technically competent in like my childhood and into like my adolescence and early adulthood, when I got in the dev field, it wasn't the same. It felt very different, very intimidating. The same way I imagine it feels for people who don't grow up technical. Because I feel like you can hear what we just said and think like, yeah, we're just computer geniuses. We grew up that way. I don't, that wasn't true for me. Like resonate with you, you know? It does. And I think that, you know, there's been a lot said about dismantling, but like sort of like looking at the archetype of you and me, right? Like white dudes in tech that grew up tinkering with computers. like. On a podcast. You know, that, <laughs> right, on the podcast. Yep, exactly. Like, I get it. It's a yeah. But there's a lot of, you know, really good stuff that's been said about that not being a generally available archetype or path, right? Like, there's a lot of built-in sort of, like, systemic privileges that are implied in how we learn technology, right? And it's honest, this is honestly a really good segue because I love to, like, Talk a little bit about how you think that landscape has changed for aspiring developers, because now, you know, compared to when I was a kid, certainly there's a lot more freely available resources. There's a lot more support out there. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on what you think of the rise of those like online resources and communities and, and the impact that they've had. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely like a double-edged sword, but it's very cool. So like, I mean, you know this, I, I worked at uh, Dev.2, which is one of those communities that's very large. I worked there for a, a, quite a while and for at least a bit while they were kind of transitioning to this model that they're pursuing now. And 
really got to have conversations about what is this community and what do the people want it need and you know what value does this provide and then seeing the other options out there seeing things like mlh and, and like hacker noon and things like you know even like west boss has like slack communities and people like that who have these slack communities that grow and I did take advantage of a number of those. Like at one point in my career, like while I was still on the junior end of things for sure, I was doing free code camp and I was doing the Odin project and I was doing things like that. You know, it's very different than it is today, but still the same spirit. And then, you know, at the same time, now that I look back and see the volume of these communities, I also see that they're very intimidating. They're very loud. There's a lot of marketing, there's a lot of misinformation alongside the good information. Like I was kind of blind about how I went into this. You know, I could tell what I was looking for, but I had no idea what it would actually appear as. I knew that I wanted a profession in this field that was rewarding, but I didn't actually know what professions there were. And so I was talking to DBAs and those are the people who told me like what to do. And I may have very much ended up on a different path where I ended up being someone who did more of an IT skill set and wouldn't have had the things that I'm now really happy to have done in my background. So I got lucky in that way. And now you can be more intentional and say, oh, no, I want to be a full stack developer, I need to know Node, I need to know React, I need to know this, I need to know all these things, because that's what Facebook hires or like whatever. And that can be a whole nother set of problems. Uh, that's a whole lot of information. So it, it's a double-edged sword. It's changed a lot. I know the big thing that resonates with me, though, is that there is community there. Are, like, it's not lonely. Because for me, my journey learning program on a professional level, you know, going from hobbyist to professional was very, very lonely, very, very messed up. A lot of hours in front of my computer. You know, there, there was a Twitter influencer I follow and I really like, and he had a tweet one time where he said he's in his 30s now. And so people reach out on Facebook and get this message at like 3 a.m. or whatever that was just something like, hey, I really want to figure this coding thing out. Like, that sounds good. And just some random person he knew from high school. And he sent back something along the lines of like, no worries, just stay up till 3 a.m. for the next decade. And like, that's true. Like, that, that is how I developed that skill set for five or six years, you know, just... I just sat in front of my computer all night. And like, that's hard. It's a lot different than having a Discord you check every day and keeping accountability buddies and, you know, working on your work-life balance while you do that instead of just being a grind that you do by yourself with a very clear idea of what you want, but not a lot of accountability or support. And so there are parts of that journey I look back on, I struggle to like encourage people to do. I've joked with a friend about starting a podcast about being someone without a technical education, without a degree in the tech field and what that really looks like. And my entire pitch on that would be, I want to hold up that ad I get on Instagram that says, hey, 24 months, find a new job, quit your job, be a programmer, here's a bootcamp. I want to take that ad and then hold that up against reality. That's something for me that I think is really compelling about how the landscape has changed, that there's community and that's amazing. And I really wish I had had that. But I also feel for people who are coming up now and are just absolutely overwhelmed and drowning in information, you know, can't even get what they need because everyone out there is trying to be a thought leader, trying to be an influencer. And it's not easy to navigate that when you don't have context. So I feel for that a lot. And I think that's complicated, nuanced question. Like it's changed so much and not a hundred percent for the better, but in a lot of ways it is infinitely better. And, and like there's so much more, I would say someone asked me about becoming a self-taught developer today. I would tell them that I would be encouraging. I would tell them, yeah, you can do that. Here are some resources. Here's who to plug in with. Someone had asked me when I was doing it, I would have probably pushed them away from it because of the emotional toll, I think. So I don't know. That's, that's a long-winded answer, but I really, that's, that's a question that resonates with me on an emotional level, for sure. What do you mean by the emotional toll of becoming a self-taught developer? 
So like when I was doing this, I should give a caveat. New York City, right? I think it's the last time I had heard. Yeah. So you're surrounded by a lot of people. And if you want to go to a tech meetup and you want to go connect with people, like you can do that. And five or six years ago, 10 years ago, you could do that. Where I live, that's not necessarily possible. It is becoming possible. We have a tech community. It is growing. And in some ways, it's flourishing. But five or six years ago, that was a much smaller community. It was very insular. There weren't a lot of people who were doing what I was doing. People who wanted to do what I did moved, right? It didn't necessarily stay here. Or they were in university and they were on a very specific track to get into one of these Fortune 500 companies that hired exclusively out of these universities. So it was really lonely for me. I had a lot of time spent trying to network with people that weren't interested in networking with me. A lot of time spent trying to learn from people on the internet very asynchronously. You know, the people I had that understood what I was working through were not necessarily people in my day-to-day life is kind of what I'm getting at. Whereas now, I mean, if you live in a major city, you probably could have got around this by going to user groups and meetups, which is the advice that people give. And that's very good advice. But I think now you can go and like I said, you can find a Discord community where you can have that accountability and support. And there's a lot less of the RTFM kind of attitude floating around too. That's a big part of that that I think has changed that also probably contributed to like the emotional toll of like, okay, just sit in front of your computer till 3 a.m. for several years and get told RTFM over and over again. You know, that's very different experience. I don't know that it's, it's not better and it's not worse. They're just different. It's probably somewhat worse, but a lot of, uh, interesting characters on IRC when you would ask for help, right? Like it wasn't always really interesting. So how has open source as a community and as like a technical concept factored into, you know, how you think about technology and how you work on technology? Radically changed it from the get go. So all the stuff we've talked about in my career now has been basically until I started getting to open source. Like I just, everything was so difficult and painful. And I had to like work with a lot of people in environments that I didn't want to learn these skills and to grow because I didn't really understand software engineering yet. I hadn't really learned the coding skill set. And then as I learned that skill set, as I started to understand how frameworks and libraries and things like that worked and dug deeper on that, especially Rails, because that was my first full-time engineering job was in a Rails shop, but I did not know what I was doing. So it took a lot to learn there. And then when I moved to the next job, I continued digging into open source and that job, it just happened. This is such a cool coincidence. It just happened that that e-commerce startup had decided to build their project on top of an open source project, like very consciously and build a relationship with that project. And I just fell into doing that. I fell into working with those people. I fell into being something of a face for our company in that community. Um, it just made sense for me and I wanted to do it. And I kept doing it. And I learned so much so rapidly from working with these people. I went from a very junior skill set to one that was a lot more competent very quickly from working with engineers who had 15 or 20 years of experience that all they wanted to do was move this project forward. And if you were willing to help, they would coach you. And that's something that, man, like I wish I had known that and how that worked five or six years previously, because I would have gotten a lot better advice and I would have been on a much better path. And I think that's maybe specific, like I said, to my geography, that I was in a place where there was literally one picture of how you became one of these people as a software engineer, and it mostly involved this traditional path. Maybe if I'd been somewhere like New York or Boston or you know San Francisco, somewhere with a larger tech community, I would have met people that did this more non-traditional thing and saw that. And the open source like opened my eyes to that. And so following my time there, I actually ended up on my core team of that project. And it was really cool. A lot of those people had an awesome experience. And I still stay in touch with tons of them. I moved to uh, Dev, to Forum, and that is an open core company. So immediately started working on an open source project, immediately started working with all those contributors. And there's just thousands of people involved in that community. So that 
was like, I guess the, the NFL version of what I was learning when I was trying to become a junior programmer. Like I saw, this is what, you know, free code camp becomes, you know, cause when I started doing free code camp, there wasn't a huge community around it. It was a small number of people. And then now it's massive. And it's the same thing with dev. Like when that started, it was a Twitter account and now it's massive. And like, you can see how these communities grow and that's really cool. So I think that the core of like, how I perceive software engineering because that's what I came up doing was working through. I got to a junior skill set level working in proprietary software like systems. I became a senior developer working with people in other countries on open source projects. And that I don't think that I can understate how much that affects how I perceive software engineering. Even now, when I work with other engineers that didn't do that, I can see the difference in how we think about the processes and stuff. Like, what are some of the differences? So for example, if you're someone who's not used to open source, like you might, I'm not going to throw any shade right now, but I worked a project recently where I sort of doing a little bit of a post-mortem on it, not necessarily like not 100% post-mortem, but just analyzing what the flaws with this and why might it be decommissioned in the future kind of. And one of the things that immediately struck me was that that piece of software had been built using Angular. And it was built using Angular several years after the core team of Angular said, please don't build stuff with this. So it was kind of like, Okay, well, if you had known, you can just go look at a project readme, or you can just go look in this repository. And these are skilled engineers, it's just they're used to using proprietary software, and proprietary frameworks, and they just like, you know, if you work for a large enough corporation, you're going to find that you don't actually need to leave their ecosystem to accomplish your job. And so they might not be trained in the same way to think about the caveats of dependencies and to think about, you know, what does it mean when we actually pull this thing off the shelf and use it? And what is, you know, free as in puppy, right? People don't necessarily have that mindset if it has actually never come with the maintenance costs because they're taking an internal tool. And that's not shade of those people. It's just a different way of thinking about software. And, you know, I struggle to understand the value of some of the collaborative services that are available to me now working at a Fortune 500 company or you know, Fortune 1 company. We have so much money. We can build so many interesting things. And I forget to even look because I think, let's look in open source. Let's look outside. And it's like, well, I'm not used to looking internally. Whereas the people that I work with now that have been at that corporation for years, no, instantly. No, we have a way better like closed source version of that. And that's also an advantage. So it's just a different way of perceiving how you build software. You know, over the course of this, you've alluded a couple of times to some of the things that you felt you were lacking in compared to traditionally taught developers and perhaps some advantages that you had. I'd love to like dig into that a little bit more because I feel like we're, you know, your journey is an interesting like way of sort of understanding your perspective. But like, how does that come into practice in a day-to-day -day, like engineering environment? Totally. Yeah, no, I think that's a really great question. And I think it's interesting that you asked both the advantages and the disadvantages, because I think that there are, you know, any mental model has both advantages and disadvantages like pros and cons. So for one, I think that the issues that I felt like when I came up as an engineer, I was lacking. One of the first thing that comes to mind, and I actually talk about this a lot. I wrote like blog posts on it because it was just like, such an easy thing for me to talk about because I didn't, I just was intimidated by it and writing things down made it less intimidating. So like Git is like my first thought when people think about like, what's scary? And what I like about Git is actually that it sort of is a little bit of like a Kobayashi Maru answer, I guess, to this, because I don't think people who come from soft, like software engineering programs or computer science programs know Git either. <laughs> I think that like, you know, you might come in as a self-taught engineer and be like, oh man, this Git thing's like super scary. Like the people from university don't know either. So like, it's fine. That specific thing for me was a huge imposter syndrome fuel. And so it's the first thing I think of when I think of those skills. But it was really important for me to realize that not everyone who came through a traditional had that skill. But when I think about like the things that really are truly different, a big one is 
understanding computer science fundamentals, like that can be a thing that can be orders of magnitude important on your career progression. And sometimes in an unfortunate way, when we talk about like interviewing, that's a thing that is huge in our industry. And people who have taken, you know, six or nine hours of algorithms classes are going to have done some of these questions before, seen ways to answer these questions. And if you're someone who's self-taught and you've been more of a pragmatic learner, you maybe aren't as comfortable in those interview situations. And that can be difficult in when you're talking about career progression. That's a big difference. But I think that we have advantages. I think the self-taught people have like, I don't want to say scrappiness, the word I've, I've heard used to describe people that are self-taught. I don't necessarily agree with that. <laughs> but you some implications to it. I get the sentiment there is that people who are self-taught a lot of times are resourceful. And I think you're going to have this advantage of just knowing how to learn when resources are limited that you may not have if you learned in a more traditional environment. That's a huge one. And that's the one I think I would center on most if someone asked me for encouragement or asked me just what is it I can highlight about being self-taught that makes it a valuable path that makes it and not necessarily the worst path to pursue. It is that you are a really, really good learner. Um, and I think that is not always true of people who have been taught in a traditional setting where answers are given to you more often than, you know, you're given zero and told to go make something happen. That does happen a lot if you go on a self-taught path. You very frequently will find yourself feeling like you're holding nothing and you need to go make something happen. I think people who go the more traditional path, you'll have kind of a career project progression typically where you go from sort of a university level engineer to a junior level engineer to a mid-level engineer to a senior, and there's like actual documented steps to do that. Whereas if you go through agencies and startups and you know whoever will hire you, you may not have that same experience. Yeah, I think not to make it entirely self-promotional, but like I do think a lot of university students use hackathons and other like self-driven projects. They might be open source. They might be other things to supplement what you're talking about, where it's like they sit in a lecture, they understand the concepts, they know the answer. And doing any kind of self-driven project outside of that gives you, you know, at least part of that leg up where it's like, I can take a problem from idea to reality myself. And that's not something that's typically taught in classrooms, like at all. Totally. Yeah. And I think that to your point, hackathons are like community events like that are a huge piece of what I think takes a lot of those university students into being people who become founders or into being people who end up being very quickly progressing engineers or open source creators are the ones that go to those hackathons come out with an idea and an idea gets some steam and like that you can really really scale up your skill set whether you want to or not if you put yourself in that situation if you get into open source you do get yourself in a position where you're maintaining something like you're going to learn you're going to grow it's not really up to you if you want to keep maintaining that project so i think that's excellent point and i think the self-taught people or community taught people should maybe even double or triple down on that like maybe that's too much of a good thing but i kind of think that is your differentiator is that you are really good in that environment and that is not always true for people who don't start from that perspective, you know, not even knowing what you don't know. The beginning from unknown unknowns, making that a comfortable place to be in, that can be such a valuable skill. Being uncomfortable, not even knowing what you know, and being prepared to go find out what you don't know and then reevaluate it. It's almost a trope, but we talk about like iterative software development, iterative and agility and these like weird buzzwords that people use. They are real and they do actually impact how we design software. And the same things can be true about your mental models and the way you think about, you know, your career and the way you think about progression and learning. And I don't think in schools you are taught necessarily how to do that. It's a lot more about getting the right answer the first time. In these hackathons and programs, you get to fail over and over and over again. And I think that's the unique cred that I can pull from my experience. That I'm not sure everyone gets. Not everyone got to fail as many times as I did. 
And I think that's really, really important. I think it's cool that you can provide that environment for traditional and non-traditional students um, and kind of get them all on the same page because it's valuable for everybody. Yeah, I certainly agree. Just out of curiosity, you said that algorithms and CS knowledge came into handy in interviews. Have you ever found them come into handy on a day-to-day basis, like when you're actually writing code? Yes, but not in a way that actually I would tell anyone to go like study this thing. Because when I'll say this, this is like my part of my career path. I have not worked as an engineer at a scale where a lot of things that people talk about mattered. If you want to work at scale, yeah, you probably need to go do that. If you just want to be someone who can build web applications and who can get people to market and be a software engineer on a level that can be iterative, if you want to be someone that can get to a level where you need those specialists who are algorithm experts and scaling experts to come in, then you don't necessarily have to be that expert. You can be a generalist and you don't have to be in, like, you can be a generalist in how Docker works. And that's really valuable. People undersell that. Like, I don't need to know every algorithm if I know a lot of Git commands and I can fix all the problems we have with Git on a day-to-day basis. Because, yeah, I'm not a super genius, but when the super genius mess up their Git, I can come help them. Like, that's valuable. So that's a way to think about it, I think. I do think that those skills are valuable, but I cannot with a straight face say that, like, it's worth the time investment if you're really just trying to get a good job. If you're trying to be a super genius, then, yeah, you got to learn that stuff. I'm not a super genius, and I'm okay with that. There's probably some unlock at some point in the career progression where you need to know that stuff, but like you can get really far without it. I think is it has a lot to do with working at scale and, and understanding the scale you want to be productive at. For me, I am really good at getting things to market quickly. And that's a skill I've really doubled down on, on learning and being productive inside of that space, kind of ideation to proving out a concept. But I've also worked in places where having the ability to think at scale is important. And in those places, being teachable became really important. It goes back to the idea of being a self-learner. So like understanding something like database sharding and why that becomes necessary, when it becomes necessary, and how do you actually execute something like that? You know, I was working on a company building an e-commerce platform and we were thinking about multi-tenancy and how do we accomplish this? And like those concepts were pretty scary. I don't really know how all that works, you know, but when I sat down with the CTO and with the really, really senior people who have been doing this for 20 or 15 years, and I said, will you explain this to me? And I committed it to memory, actually took it seriously. This person's investing his time in me and was a good learner. That was a lot more valuable than someone who came in and understood, you know, from an algorithms class or something, some concept about efficiency that they didn't actually, they weren't actually going to apply in the first five years of their career anyway. Like that's, it's much more valuable to be that teachable person. So on the flip side of that, now that you have some experience and they're in a mentorship position, probably for more junior people, like how do you approach mentorship? And I guess like for people listening, what's some more generalized advice that you might have for people who are getting their start? I think mentorship is huge and it's a part of my career that I really enjoy. And I've gotten the most, I think, out of like personal fulfillment, out of when people will reach out and acknowledge like positive impacts I've had on their career as, as either a coach or just like a coworker or, you know, a mentor in some respect. Literally the proudest moment I think I have in my career is an intern that I had that a couple of years later, you know, I coached him through some career things and a startup failed and I helped him figure out what to do after that. And his goal was to get hired at Google and he had some really explicit reasons for why he wanted to do that. And a few years ago, he texted me and told me that he had achieved that and just had some really, really positive things to say about like how my feedback had gotten him there and my advice and what even what to specialize in like a couple of years previous because he had said, what do I do to get here? And I was like, man, here's a niche. Like, you know, people that Google, they'll hire you if you can do that. 
And that it worked. So I felt really, really good that I helped this guy accomplish what for him was a career goal. That is like the motivating thing I've ever experienced. So I would say that in my career, not only do I like want to like approach and try to make mentorship like as much of my career as I possibly can, because I think that that's hugely fulfilling. When we talk about like advice around mentorship, uh, the thing that I see the most and encounter a lot is people kind of reaching out, asking for mentorship relationships or advice in like a formalized kind of way. Like you think they're going to get like inducted into a secret order or something like, Hey, will you be my mentor? Will you like take me as your apprentice kind of thing? That doesn't really work in my opinion. Uh, even people who are trying to do that formalized mentorship, I've it never really worked for me when I was trying to be mentored that way. I think that mentorships really require an authentic relationship. And so if you are someone who is seeking a mentor out, the best thing you can do is go be in an like go literally just have proximity to the people that you want to be mentored by and have a reason to see them outside of that mentorship relationship because that will fuel the mentorship relationship. If you're just there to extract value from someone, you're both even if they want to do that, you're both going to get exhausted and, and not stay motivated to do that. It's much better to say, build a friendship with someone and then say, hey, we're friends. Can you help me? You'll get a lot, a lot healthier mentorship relationship out of friends or acquaintances than you will out of strangers, I think. Yeah, that definitely rings true for me as well. So I noticed that, you know, after many, many years as an engineer, your most recent role is product management. And you know, I've met a handful of other people who kind of made similar transitions or, you know, tapped into a different skill set there. Like, why did you go into product management, right? And what were you actually bringing to the table as someone with an engineering background? That's a, a really good question. Actually, the transition is harder to make than I would have thought when I decided I wanted to. Um, so I'll say that when people ask, what are you bringing to the table as like someone with an engineering background? I would have thought like a lot. A lot of people in product management don't put a lot of stock in that. But I have found, you know, in my 90 or 120 days of doing this, that I've been informally in this role where it's no longer in any way my job ever to write code, which is interesting. I have found that it's extremely valuable because I think there are things that I know about software engineering that most product managers just don't know because they're experiential. And that's something that is hard to understate. So just knowing what it feels like to kind of see the same error message again for like the 600th time and like have spent enough time on a problem and not be able to solve it to like question your career and be like, why am I even doing this? I'm not, I can't do this. Knowing that every developer does that, even the ones that say they don't, like knowing that every developer has that day, that informs a lot of product like decisions, especially when you're talking about like, what are we going to promise to people? And when are we going to promise it? And what do we not know yet? Like things like that. Or you talk to an engineer and you ask for an estimate. Understanding what's going through that engineer's head when they provide that estimate, that's something that you can't really get unless you've ever provided that estimate before. So it's a, very valuable. But I don't think people, if someone's interested in making the same transition, I don't think it's easy to sell that experience as I would have expected. You really do need to come in and say, okay, no, I actually do understand some of these like producty buzzword ideas and why they actually like the core part that isn't a buzzword, the core part that actually did matter and how you actually do take something to market, how you actually get someone to be honest with you when you're collecting feedback, things like that. Those skills, I built those as a developer. And so I can't separate those from what I bring to the table as a developer. As a developer, I worked at companies that could not afford a product manager or maybe a couple of companies that had really, really good product managers later in my career where I got to see it modeled for me. And then I got to steal some of those techniques and apply them as a tech lead. So like those opportunities are what made me valuable when I transitioned more than the, the engineering background, at least from the hiring people's perspective. I still kind of disagree with that. I still think like being a dev is sort of a superpower, but the people that hired me 
we're interested more, I think, in my ability to do both skills rather than just bring a technical skill set and form them on things because that wasn't, you know, it's not the entirety of a VM product. There's a lot of what people would call soft skills, but I think, you know, there's a lot of trial and error involved and you have to be comfortable with that and build that muscle. Long-winded answer again, but I feel like it's hard to tear those two things apart. That I built that skill as a developer. But when you ask me, did I bring that from my developer background? It's hard to sell in an interview. Why did you become a PM? Yeah, I've given different answers to different people. And I think that is important to acknowledge. But I think that on one level, there's an amount of burnout that I went through as a dev. And that was very real. On another level, I was ready to get away from the type of startups I had worked for historically. Um, and that was just going through a really specific harrowing experience where I joined a startup and I just kind of instantly knew this was not the right call. And realizing and going through that, not necessarily, I would say that's the worst version of it uh, that I've had more recently, but I've had similar experiences in the past. And I just decided I want to get to a place in my career where if I'm going to be in a startup, I get a little bit more control over those elements, the, the equation, which might include like having founders, you know, that I am able to push back more effectively against, or might include understanding the business model well enough to know, you know, whether or not the numbers make sense, things like that. And product managers build that skill set. They build the ability to read a profit and loss statement. They build the ability to understand, you know, costs around development and why you might choose not to build something, even if it makes a whole lot of sense to engineers, things like that. You learn that skill set that at the end of the day is, is really the business side of the equation. And I think I needed to learn that to be comfortable working in startups in the future. I needed to be able to have the skill set of a founder in reality to want to go work for more people that are building companies or build my own in the future. And I saw an opportunity to do that by moving to a huge corporation where there are infinite safety nets, right? That's what I'm doing right now is learning a skill set in a place where I'm not risking 30 people's jobs and all of our investment capital to learn how to do something. I'm risking money from well-balanced budget that was intended to be risk, which is a totally different way to learn that skill set. That's my answer to why I became a PM is, is I wanted to be able to have that strategic influence on startups in the future. I knew I wasn't going to get to that place without a lot of trial and error. So I needed to go somewhere where I could have, like I said, sort of infinite safety net to take a lot of risk. So I don't know, that's a long-winded answer, but it has to come full circle, I think, to say that it's about being a more like holistic person. Like a huge part of what I did as a dev was not traditionally thought of as like the developer's job. And so doing this left me be more true to those parts of my professional life, I guess. That's great. I think it's a fantastic answer. So uh, we only have a couple of minutes left here. When we like zoom out of our whole conversation, right? And we're thinking about your educational path, how people learn more generally, all of the different things that we've kind of touched on. Are there any like big changes you would like to see in how developers learn those skills and start their careers? Yeah. I mean, there are probably infinite changes I would like to see, I think, but there are some really big ones that I think are achievable and like maybe realistic. So one thing we all talk about that's just awful is, you know, the way into the industry, like interviewing, right? How that all plays out. No matter what level you're at, you can have 20 years of experience and your interview will be just as terrible. So like interviewing is just not good. So I wish that gate was changed. And I think we all wish that. That's like the first thing is that while you're learning, you don't have to learn how to get the job. You can just learn how to do the job. So the interview gate goes away. We don't have to put the energy into to getting past that gate. That would be number one. But I think 
another piece that probably plays into that would be like apprenticeship models. I would like to see apprenticeship models become actually viable. I know people have tried them. I know they exist, but I know there's also a lot of reasons why they shouldn't be pursued. Companies and founders and businesses will give reasons why they don't want to do an apprenticeship that are really valid. So I would like to see viable apprenticeships like that. I want to see some kind of pattern model. And I, I don't know what it is, unfortunately, but I like to see a pattern model where people can come in with basically nothing and walk out with an employable skill set and they aren't being asked to pay for it. That's really what it comes down to. So I think like what you're doing with uh, MLH is like one of those things, right? You're sort of modeling a way that you could achieve that. And there's a couple other pr- people that I've talked to that are sort of trying to build sort of almost agency models around the idea of like, we're going to let people fail here and learn here. And, you know, a lot of open source work is, I think, maybe going to change over time to become, I hope, work that helps build people up and helps build those skill sets rather than just being something that only the experts sort of allowed to work on. I feel like there's a lot of work being done, especially in your space, to lower that barrier of entry for open source. But I think one day I would like to see open source become the primary vehicle that people learn to code. and sort of invert the funnel of how it works where it's like you contribute early in your career rather than later in your career. I absolutely love that. I think it's an achievable future. I think it's like slow to get there, but it's a realistic future to imagine. So the question I always like to end on, which is kind of, I find it to be kind of like interesting, but also silly at the same time is if you think about like science and tech and like all of these like aspirational figures in the world, is there anyone that you would like to just like grab for a couple hours, take them to lunch and just like pick their brain about how they think about things? Yeah, I think it's a funny question because like I kind of did that. This podcast, I did like 29 episodes and it's literally just people that I was like, that's someone I noticed in the software development community that I think like I look up to for some reason. It's not the same reason for all of them, but it's like some reason I look up to this person and I want to ask them about their life and I want a reason for them to do that. So I started the podcast. So a little bit, I did that. I think outside the constraints of like currently living even, or like if I really expand my strength constraints there, I'm like pretty interested in the idea of talking to anybody. I don't want to pick a specific person because I don't want to like fanboy, I guess. But I think I'm really interested in talking to anybody who has a very deep understanding of like neurochemistry. So like Andrew Huberman comes to mind. He's kind of like the influencer right now. That's a person that like, but, but also a very real scientist. That's a person I would like to maybe go go be able to ask some personalized questions about my brain. That'd be kind of cool. Yeah, I think that's my answer. Probably Andrew Huberman. Yeah, I, I had to get there. But I think it's funny because in my podcast, I really did do that. There are people that I interviewed on that podcast like that I was just like, this is someone that I am 100% a fanboy of and I want to understand like their career and why they did this. So, like Avdi Grimm is a person I did that with. And now we're like acquaintances. And that's really cool. I can have a conversation with Avdi fairly easily. And that's because when I first started developing i was listening to podcasts with him and i was like man that guy that guy's really smart that guy's really got to figure it out but now i like know him as a person so i think that's a, a really cool question because i also think it's more achievable than most people probably imagine like you really can if you just find a reason to be slightly valuable to somebody you might be able to have that conversation with them you know so how to get andrew Huberman on my podcast about developers i mean you never know man people are way more open to sharing than most people would expect Totally. Yeah, you got to let other people say no, you know? Yeah, that happens too. But awesome. Well, I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for making the time. I hope everyone enjoyed listening to our little conversation as well. Where can people find you and your work if you know they want to see more? 
Yeah, I used to have a Twitter that I was pretty active on, but I don't really use it anymore. There is a podcast out there called devpath.fm. It's a couple years old, but if you want to hear my voice a lot more, I don't know why, but if you want to, it's there. I would say that you can look me up on LinkedIn right now. It's the only social media that I use. So it's there. I'm using it. I don't like Twitter. I probably in the future will evaluate releasing a second season of that podcast. So if I'm going to point you anywhere, it's there just to talk about more things around that circle of like the same kind of questions you're asking. Mine are a lot more focused on imposter syndrome and sort of like which parts of this were really bad for you. Um, I really like when people are honest about that because when we share our losses, like we all feel a lot better. You know? I've listened to a couple of episodes and I like the realness of it a lot. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. That's cool. Yeah, because it was very real. I mean, it's several years removed now, but like I was 100% struggling with some of those issues and I want to hear how these people think about it. So yeah, that's fantastic. Well, thank you again, Jacob. And, you know, if folks enjoyed it, definitely, you know, subscribe and stay tuned for more episodes. But uh, happy hacking and hopefully we'll talk again soon. Cool. Thanks, John. The State of Developer Education is brought to you by Major League Hacking. To find out more about Major League Hacking and how we're educating the next generation of developers and helping the world's leading companies reach them, visit sponsor.mlh.io. And make sure to search for developer education in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen, and click like and subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. And if you like it, please don't forget to leave a review, and we'll give you a shout out on a future podcast. On behalf of the team here at Major League Hacking, thanks for listening and helping us empower the next generation of technologists. Happy hacking! Happy hacking!